Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert. I'm the lead pastor. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. And before jumping in, let me just update us on a couple of things, some couple of cool things. You know, it's hard to believe we are into the month of October, and it's even actually starting to feel like it just a bit outside, although it's sprinkling, which means the power is going to go out at any second. So I'm just, I'm, pre- I'm preparing us. But you know, ramping up into the fall is usually a time where we're really calling the church family to think about how to serve, use your gifts um, in a variety of ways. And we've highlighted a number of ways, just a couple of cool stories about how God has been really faithful this season um, to meet our needs. Um, our children and student ministries folks have, have all the volunteers they, they needed. One particularly cool story, and, and he's not in here. He's not going to like it, though, when he hears that I, that I mentioned his name. But Vic Diario, he's the husband, Melissa. Melissa oftentimes sings up here in the worship team. A few weeks ago, he was dropping off his, his daughter at, at her second grade class or third grade class and noticed that there was, shall we say, a lot more kids than adults in that room. Um, in fact, we had to combine a couple of classes because we were still looking for workers. And he kind of, he emailed Shannon Pye for our children's director and said, whoa, what's, what's going on? And she kind of indicated, hey, we, we're still looking for folks. And he kind of just asked the question, it kind of dawned on him, uh, why not me? Why not me? And Shannon said, yes, why not you? And so, so Vic dove in. I don't know if he's ever taught children. He has children, that's, that, which is great. I guess that's a help on some, along some lines. And so he jumped in and he said, just whatever service you need, I'm, I'm there. And so, and so thanks to, to Vic, but thanks to everyone this season who's done something like that, who's jumped in. Another cool story, um, Trish Duff, who is, who is uh, Tim Duff's wife, Trish and, and Tim met in the college ministry that I led some decades ago, and that was the only enduring ministry to hook up the Duffs and the Hughes, and that, that, that's about it. But nonetheless, um, we usually have a Wednesday night study for women. We have an adult ed class that I'm teaching, the, the Dust of Glory class. So we usually have a, a, a women's Bible study. Didn't Again, Trish is talking to Debbie Cunningham, our women's director, and says, hey, is no one able to teach a class, no one available? And Debbie says, no. And so what, is, what does Trish ask herself? Why not me? And so, because she's, so she's leading, teaching a class up here on Wednesday nights, 12 women being discipled and poured into because of, of her availability. And those are just cool things, Four Oaks. It's just a reminder to us how ministry actually happens here at Four Oaks. You know, we're a leadership-driven, but not a leadership-centered church, which means that for ministry to happen, you, us, all of us as a family have to see ourselves as a priesthood of believers, that it's not a special gilded class, a professional that's called to do ministry for people, but in fact, one of the things that we do as a family is we equip each other for works of, of ministry. And it's just really cool to see that happening. And so, again, thank you for all who are pouring yourselves back into this church family this season. There's still lots of opportunities to serve. Just because it's October doesn't mean your expiration on service is up. All right, you, can, you can still serve lots of ways. Stop by the Connect Desk. We'll help you out. Had a safe families event here and that's, a, that's a, on Thursday, and that's something geared towards needy families in the community. And Louie Marooney's running that. Just a ton of ways to serve. Encourage you to kind of ask the question, why not me. Why not me? John 5, big passage today, weighty passage. We've been talking about the authority of Jesus 
And last week, we, we, we saw where Jesus makes this pretty astounding claim that he's the son of God, that he is, in fact, equal with God because he is God, and that God has vested him with a unique authority that one day Jesus will come back and by his voice, by, by, by his sheer volume of, of the decibels that will come out of his mouth, everyone in the history of planet Earth will rise without exception. The most powerful, the weakest, the poorest, the most famous, the most notorious, all will rise at the sound of Jesus' voice to face judgment, either everlasting life in his name or everlasting judgment and separation from God for eternity. And we have to say, boy, that's a pretty astounding claim, Jesus. Where or on what basis do you make this sort of assertion? That, that's a great question for us in a postmodern age where to declare any particular path, any particular way as the way will likely get you tagged as being a bigot or closed-minded or, or worse, a hate monger. But that's not the Bible. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, I make my claim with good reason. And so let's hear what Jesus says are those reasons. I'm going to invite us to stand as we have been for this series as we read through John, we're going to be starting in verse 30, going down into verse 47. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life." I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, as we are going to see this morning, you have given us ample proof, ample evidence, ample testimony to who you are and to who Jesus Christ is. That's not the problem. The problem is us. 
The problem is our hearts. The problem is that this is a hard word, and we oftentimes don't want to hear it or have difficulty receiving it. So, Father, do what only you can do this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to make our heart of stones into heart of flesh, to take these dry bones and to to add muscle and sinew and life to. Father, we need you. We need your help. Lord, we don't want your word to to fall on, on deaf ears and hardened hearts. So, Lord, have your way with us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember it like it was yesterday. My little league career extended to the age of 14, and then I was done for sure. But the high watermark of of my little league mastery was 36 years ago. I think I was 12. We played on a team in Eastridge, Tennessee called the Pirates. My dad was coaching, which means I was an automatic selection to the All-Star game every year, but but for no other reason than than my ancestry. But our arch rival in the league were the Cardinals. And this was a key game. It was, it was, we were fighting, fighting it out at the top of the division, who was going to go on and play for the championship. And it all came down to the last play where our pitcher picked off a guy who was caught between third and home. And I remember us celebrating and we all ran out on the field and it was a big deal. And then as the kids and parents began to filter away back home to go catch hee-haw reruns or whatever it is that we watched at that time in our life, I noticed there, over to the side, there was a little commotion. It seemed that the Cardinals were, were lodging a protest. You see, in, in Little League rules, I don't know what they are now, but you have to play all your players at least two innings, okay? It's kind of an equal opportunity Little League, okay? And if you don't, then, then you automatically forfeit. And their accusation against us was that we had not played one of our players. Well, I knew this was baloney, okay, because... Not just because it was my team and we won, but I knew who this particular kid was. They said didn't play. I remember it distinctly because all he did in this game was what? Strike out. Okay? So I, I, I remember it distinctly. And I remember all the coaches from the two teams, my dad and the other teams of coach and the umpires were all huddled up and they were debating this. And so I kind of stepped into the middle of this and I said, hey, I know about him. I still remember the kid's name. David Metcalf, okay, David Metcalf. I, I know David Metcalf. He played and he struck out. In fact, that's all he did was strike out in this game. I didn't say that. But he struck out. And then everybody kind of looked at me like, okay, great. You're the coach's kid. You're the, t- you're the kid of the coach of the winning team. What value is your testimony, right? So the coach of the other team also had a son. And the son came up and did not know what was going on did not know what this debate was all about. And so somebody thought to ask him, hey, Stan, that was his name, do you, do you know David Metcalf? And he thought he was like, because he did not like David Metcalf, and he was just like bragging, like, oh, yeah, he played tonight. He struck out every time he played. And everybody looked around and said, is that testimony good enough? And they're like, yes. And I was like, hey, that was awesome. Went and got my icy. See, it... As, as valid as my testimony would have been, it wasn't accepted as true because I had a self-interest in it, right? And in, in, in an interesting way, that's kind of what's going on in this text. Remember, we last, 
left last week where Jesus is making these astounding claims of authority. That he's the son of God, he's equal to God, he judges everyone. But look at verse 31, and Jesus says a very interesting thing. Verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, if he was the only, only one testifying to his identity and authority, what makes it more valid than any other person? It's like me saying, you know what, I could play quarterback for the Tennessee Volunteers, and this year I think I could, by the way, okay? And what would they say? They would say, let's see your tape, son. Do you have any eligibility left, old man? Can you throw the ball? Let's bring in the witnesses. Let's bring in the wide receivers. Let him throw. In verse 37 tells us where Jesus draws his authority. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, in this text, there are three different ways that Jesus says the Father, God the Father, the God of the universe, has borne witness about Jesus, that he is, in fact, who he says he is. And, and there's three different testimonies or three different sort of bodies of evidence identified in this text, and we're going to talk about two of them this morning. The first one is signs, the signs that Jesus has been doing. We're going to hold on that one because we're coming to a section of John where every passage is about signs. And we don't want to hear that sermon eight different times. We want to, we want to, we want to, we're going to say, we're going to keep our powder dry on that one. But the two we want to look at this morning that Jesus brings up are John the Baptist He's witness, testimony, number one, and then the holy scriptures themselves. And Jesus says these two things in and of themselves are overwhelmingly enough to testify to who I am. But here's the question we want to wrestle with. Because I think this is the one that John the Apostle, the gospel writer, is wanting us to wrestle with. Remember, his, his thing to us is believe. We sang all about it this morning. I came that, that you might believe in me, the only Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. Here's the question for us. Why don't the Jewish leaders believe him? That's John's chief concern. Why, despite all the overwhelming evidence, do they not turn their hearts to him? And then conversely, here's going to be the question for us. Why don't we believe What's, when God makes himself known and evident in his truth and our hearts are hardened, why don't, why don't we believe? What does this tell us about the nature of biblical faith? So that's where we're going. Two points, the shining lamp and the words of scripture. Those are our, those are our two headings. Look in verse 35, Jesus says, a man has come. And he calls this man a burning and shining lamp. Hello, Mr. Lamp, right? That's that, he calls him this. That's his nickname. And obviously, from verse 33, we know that he's referring to John the Baptist. He calls him by name. Now, we've talked a good bit in this series already about John the Baptist. Just, just a brief overview. Jesus himself calls John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets. Remember that John came out of the wilderness looking like Elijah, sounding like Elijah, preaching like Elijah, so much so, so that people said, who is this man? Is he, ready, Elijah? 
No, he's not Elijah, but he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. And remember that people flocked from everywhere. There, was, there had been 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period from the time that the Jews had returned from exile. We, we studied this in the book of Daniel a year or so ago. And there had been no prophetic word, no word from God, but John shows up and there cannot be a shadow of a doubt. This is a man from God. He preached with authority. And people came flocking to him. They ran to him. They rejoiced in him. And look at verse 35 in this text for a second. It said, John says, Jesus says something very interesting that we, we oftentimes forget. You know, we think oftentimes about the, the religious leaders coming out and having questioning John and, and John warning them and rebuking them. But there was a time for a, for a season where the religious leaders themselves were drawn into John's ministry. Look at verse 35. Let me read that. He was a burning and shining lamp. And now listen, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So in other words, even the religious leaders for a time, a limited time, but for a season were drawn in. They, they rejoiced, it says. Even they had to admit that this was preaching in authority like they had never heard before. There was crowds. There was energy. There was enthusiasm. There was momentum. But yet here we are, and they've fallen away. No, you know, it's easy to generate interest in something for a short amount of time. It's easy to generate interest with a splash in the pan. That's the nature of our culture and instant connectivity, and you go viral. May I remind you of the hideous scar upon our cultural psyche, Pokemon. Do you remember this? Okay. I say, remember this. How long ago was this? Oh, it seems like yesterday. But there was creepy people running around trying to get into our building, and some of them were you, and it was concerning. And you would post about it on Facebook, and it was all the rage. You were tweeting, Facebooking. Where's Pokemon now? I hope someone has stuck a fork in him and that he is dead, okay? Thank goodness. See, because it's easy to generate interest, but right, it's very difficult to sustain it. See, the spiritual leaders of Israel were initially caught up in this whole wave of John the Baptist, See, it says they rejoiced, they delighted in. We have to ask the question, what were they rejoicing in? What, what made it so attractive for them to be caught up in the, in the, in the ministry of the Baptist? Here, here's what I think. Here's what I think. See, the religious leaders, these were the guys, the Pharisees and others, who had been hanging around for a couple hundred of years because there was no king. They were the spiritual gatekeepers of Israel. It, the, fair, the sect of the Pharisees, and we've been studying this in the Dust of Glory class. Did you like a little in-sermon commercial? Did you like that? We, we've been studying this, that they actually started out as the pure. They were the ones who wanted to preserve the religion, the Jewish religion, in the face of all these cultural influences, but over time they grew hardened and they grew man-centered and they grew legalistic and they, 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 it became all about their power and their control. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, 
They're like, well, what do you know? God's coming to overthrow the Romans and inaugurating his kingdom. And guess what? We get to be at the head of it. We get to be on the ground floor. We're in this because what God is going to do for us. But here's the thing. That wasn't the, ma- the message of John the Baptist. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of God is here. When the, when the religious leaders found out it was about faith and change and cleansing and, oh, my goodness, we have to be baptized as a symbol of God cleansing our heart because we are a sinful people, guess what? They didn't want any part of it. They didn't want to deal with their sin. And despite the overwhelming evidence of the work of the power of spirit in John the Baptist's life, they politely and not politely said, no, thank you. This is a reminder for us that when John talks about believe, what we mean by believe, what we mean by genuine faith, saving faith, that the, the hallmark of true conversion, of true fruit, is a changed heart. Not a religious observance. Not turning over a new leaf. Not trying to reorder the exterior of our lives to appear better to others, our family, ourselves, and thinking that's somehow going to do something for us. See, instead of faith in God for these leaders, God was simply a means to something else. And does that resonate for you at all? Does it resonate when you think about how you think of God and who he is in relationship to your life, do you know what I think just personally makes us very susceptible to falling away? I think what makes us very susceptible to falling away is when God says no or God says wait or maybe when God is quiet or when God says change. You know, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to trust you with my marriage. I'm trying to trust you with my job. If only you would change my boss. If only you would change my spouse. If only you would change, fill in the blank, whatever that thing is for you. And God has a different message for you. He said, I got all that under control. I'll take care of that. But here's what I'm concerned. I want to change you. That's, that's the work that I want to do. That's what he was telling these religious leaders. They wanted none of it. And let's be often, oftentimes, we identify where our Christianity, our relationship with Christ is a means to something else, right? It's a, it's a, it's a means to, to, to being successful. It's a means to having a happy marriage. It's a means to, to having great children or a wonderful life. And when we don't get it, when it's taken away, or when God says, wait, or when he says, those are all important things, but I want to do a more fundamental work in you, in your heart, do we persevere? Do we endure? See, that was the issue here. John was the shining lamp that God was using 
to change the heart of his people. And that's what God wants to do in your heart, in my heart today. Whatever it is that is going on your life, on in your life, good or ill, illness, difficulty, conflict, even a season, some of you may be experiencing seasons of, of success and fruitfulness and flourishing. Who do you give praise to for that? Who do you give glory to for that? God calls us this morning to render our hearts, to come before him in the spirit of the Baptist and say, God, here I am. I got all kinds of issues. I got all kinds of problems, but I need you to change me. So that's the first testimony. Now, interesting thing about the testimony of the Baptist before we move on to this point is that Jesus makes it clear here he doesn't need in and of itself a human testimony. After all, he's God, right? After all, he's God. But he says he gave human testimony through John for our sake. See, he knows we're we're fragile. He knows we're we're weak. He he knows that, that we need grace to walk in faith. And so God, listen, folks, God uses all those things. God heals bodies, God heals marriages, God, God does works of, of wonder in our lives, and we give him praise, and it's a testimony of his grace, and we say, thank you, Lord, but I love you more. You, you, the thing you most want to do in my life is in my heart. So that's the shining lamp, number one. Number two, and I think this is by far the most important in this text, the second testimony that Jesus calls upon to validate his authority, that he says the Father uses to validate who Jesus is, look in verse 39, are the scriptures. Okay, look at ver- and by the scriptures here, we mean the Old Testament. Okay, this is at this time, there was the, 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 can- the canon of books that extended from what we know, they were ordered a little differently, but Genesis through Malachi. These, the, the books of the Apocrypha were written during the intertestamental period, but they were never received uh, by God's people in the Old Testament as authoritative. They were interesting books of history, but not authoritative. So Jesus here, is, when he says scriptures, this is what he's speaking of, the Old Testament. Look at verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For, for why? For he wrote of me. Well, that's an interesting thing because I've read my Old Testament. You may or may not have read your Old Testament. I don't find the word Jesus in there once, do you? If you find it, don't tell me because I'll need to resign as your pastor, okay? But I, I haven't found it. But, of course, there's lots of allusions, lots of prophecies, lots of, of pictures and images and foreshadowing. So we're not sure exactly what Jesus is referring to here. But let, let me point out two things about what I, what I think Jesus means. First of all, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses himself does write about Jesus. Listen to Deuteronomy 18.15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. A prophet like me, Moses said, will come. And how will you recognize this prophet? 
He'll, he'll be like me. What, what was Moses like? What was Moses doing as a part of his ministry? There was no other time in the history of God's people Israel that more miraculous, supernatural signs were done than under Moses. Until when? Jesus. I just, want to, I just want to reference this just briefly. We're not going to get into this too much. But there was no doubt, and Jesus references it here in this text on a couple different times, that the sp- signs speak for themselves. That Jesus, Remember, what had Jesus just done? He had just made the invalid who had been at the pool of Bathsheba for 38 years, he had made him whole. He had turned water into wine. He had, he had done miracle upon miracle upon miracle, which most certainly these Jewish leaders need, knew all about. And it would have not have been lost on them when Moses said, there's another prophet coming, that this is the man. Now, I think there's a second way that Jesus refers to this, and I think this is a way we are to read the Old Testament. Now, I know a lot of us really struggle through the Old Testament, um, and understandably so, obscure stories and, and things about hygiene and sanitation in Leviticus, and that's going to be a great summer series. I promise you we're going there, okay, next summer. I think Jesus is talking about the way we are to read the Old Testament. We are to read it Christologically. What does that mean? Christ-centric, Christ-centered. Jesus makes an astounding claim. You ready? This whole book, and here he's referring to the Old Testament specifically, this whole book, this whole Old Testament, it's about me. Everything. It's all pointing to me. You see, this, this, the Bible is not merely a collection of stories or moralistic teachings or inspirational thoughts or, or biography, although it's, it has elements of all those. It's really about a, another story. It's about God's story. It's about God revealing himself, preparing his people for Jesus. And when you learn to, to see Jesus in every story, it will transform your reading of the Old Testament. This is an example. Back in John 1, we talked about this idea that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's think back to the Old Testament just for a second. When the Israelites would travel around the desert, remember there was no temple, there was only a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And so when the people would rest for the night or rest for a season in the wilderness, they would pitch this tabernacle, this tent. And this is where the Holy of Holies was and the Ark of the Covenant. This is where sacrifices were offered. And where would they put this tent in relationship to the people? Right in the middle. And then all the Israelites by tribe would camp out around in a concentric circle around this tent of meeting. And it was, it was, it, it was to symbolize, although we know God doesn't live in a house made with, with hands, it symbolized that God is with his people. God dwells with his people. God's going with his people. God's in the midst of his people. Despite his holiness and their sin, he's with them. Isn't it interesting, it's the same word that John uses in John 1 when he says, Jesus became flesh and what? Pitched his tent. Jesus tabernacled 
is the literal word, then all of a sudden, the Bible just comes alive to us, doesn't it? We see that, that, that no longer is it a tent, but it's a man. It's the God-man. Jesus has come, and he's living amongst us. See, I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he says all of this in this book is about me. If you would just see it, he's telling them. Now, here's the thing. Look at verse 39. If anyone studied the scriptures, it was these men. It says, you search the scriptures, and that really it gets to this idea that searching the scriptures for them was an intense process for these religious leaders. It was a lifetime endeavor. It's what they devoted themselves to full time. They were scrupulous. They were dogged. They were committed. They believed that in these documents contained eternal life. And we might can say, well, of all the people who study God's word, surely, surely, with John the Baptist and then the signs and then Moses and, and, and this study, surely of all people, they would have been able to recognize who Jesus was. Yet look what it says in verse 37. This is very instructive for us, four oaks. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. That word abide literally means to take up residence. You know, Susan um, will abandon me on Saturday mornings to go garage sale. I just put the kids on social media. It's wonderful. No, she, she will abandon me, and she'll make a call and say, you know, I just purchased this armoire. I just purchased this massive table that will take you borrowing Josh Hughes's truck and eight men to go pick it up. Can you go do that for me, right? And whenever she calls upon me to, to move one of these pieces of furniture, to get it to fit in the house, what do we have to do? We call Neil Walters. No, we, we, we rearrange everything, right? We have to move this piece and that piece, and nothing can stay the same in order to get this one piece into that living room or the kitchen or, or wherever. That's what it means. When John uses this term to take, to, to abide, it literally means to rearrange the furniture of your heart in a way that makes room for the Word of God. See, when, when, the, when the Word of God comes, because it's powerful, because it's effective, it wants to find a place in your heart. And our heart is full of all kind of furniture. Some good, some bad experiences, struggles, addictions, sin, pleasures, what have you. And God's Word comes in like a cleaning lady, and, or man, and wants to take up residence and wants to make a home. And what it's saying here is that God's word doesn't find a home in their hearts. See, their hearts are full of furniture that would require them to rearrange their priorities, that would require them to rearrange their thinking and their worldview in order to receive the word of God, but it doesn't. It doesn't. 
And verse 40 tells us why. I think it's the most important verse in this text as it relates to belief. Let's read it together. So he's saying the scriptures, they have eternal life and they bear witness about me. Look at verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The word refuse literally means they did not want to come to Jesus. It's not a statement of intellectual knowledge. They had a ton of that. It was a statement of desire. There was something going on in their hearts that says, this is mine. This belongs to me. You shall not encroach. I will not rearrange the furniture of my heart, Lord, to accommodate this word that I am receiving. You know, as Christians, oftentimes we try to explain unbelief in a variety of ways. Well, if so-and-so just had the right resources or the right counseling or the right therapy or the right support structure, you know, they come from a terrible background. You know, they were raised in a different kind of culture. They, they, they belong to a different socioeconomic status. Their family upbringing was terrible. If they only had the right amount of education, if people only knew more, because I'm, I'm a believer in education, by the way. I have more degrees than children, mainly because Susan sent me through school, and that was, that was wonderful. But let me tell you this. Education can be one of the greatest barriers to Jesus Christ because it fuels self-sufficiency and autonomy and a sense of control and that I have no need for anything. And turning to Jesus means what? Giving up that control, giving up that power. It means giving up that authority. Turning to Jesus might make me look foolish. Turning to Jesus makes me look helpless to the world. See, that's the real problem. Verse 34, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Guys, that's the root of unbelief. No matter who you are, how much you know or you don't know, that's the fundamental issue of the human heart. We are glory seekers. We are praise seekers. God, if I were to actually do that, oh my goodness, people would think I was crazy. Guys, my, 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 God, my family would just think I've lost it. My, my coworkers would look at me strangely. Oh my gosh, I'd have to rearrange some priorities of my life. I'd have to rearrange my, my spending priorities and how I travel and how I spend my free time and what I do and Man, I don't know. See, that's the root of unbelief. I have, a, I have a pastor friend who was a mentor for me many, many years ago, and he went to, to minister in a tough place. When I say a tough place, I mean ground zero in the fight for the gospel. And a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving man who was subjected to a good amount of scorn and embarrassment and shame by the people he was attempting to minister to. 
And slowly over the course of time, it became a, an issue of denying one by one the key doctrines of the faith. It started out with sexuality and gender, and then it went to the atonement, and then to the very nature of the Word of God itself. All under the guise of, we figured out a new way to read the Word of God. But that wasn't at the heart of it. What was at the heart of it was the desire for the praise of men who wanted approval and acceptance and affirmation to be light. And guys, it's so powerful. It's not just true of him. It's true of me. It's true of you. That's what's happening in this text. See, this is a good warning to us because we're a Bible-believing church. We're, we're us reformed, Calvinistic-minded, sort of God, it's glory, God's sovereignty, teaching, truth, catechism. There's a warning here for us. There's a way to study the Word of God that leads to death. And they exhibit it in this passage. See, they exhibit it in this passage. They were studying the Scriptures, but see, they studied with the wrong goal. Their goal in studying the Scriptures was to be right, not just to be right, but to lord it over men, to be seen praying in public, to, see, to be seen giving in public, standing on the street corner. Saying the word of God was their way to privilege, was their way to status. It was their way to power. Forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. The scriptures are not fundamentally about you and me, although they have say, so much to say to you and me. They are fundamentally about Jesus and about God. And it's a reminder that if what drives us in our study is to be right or to win the debates or to be condescending or to look down, and Jesus says, I have a better way. I have a better way, Paul. The truth is so important. Without any of this, we can't even have this discussion. But I have a goal with my truth, and my goal is to penetrate your heart, is to change you. My, my goal God's goal with us this morning, Four Oaks, is that he would take his word to change our hearts, to lead us to repentance, to lead us to Jesus. And the, and the, and the, the interesting part of this, the, the irony, is that he says that you appeal to Moses. Moses is your daddy. That's who you appeal to? Well, guess what? Moses will be your judge. Because Moses said, obey all the law or you die. And they couldn't do it. And you and I can't do it. That's why Jesus points us to our need for grace, a Savior. Do you know that this morning? That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. To know that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. To know that Jesus came in power through his testimony, through his works, through John the Baptist, revealed in the scriptures so that you and I might believe. So what say you this morning? The most powerful barrier to Christ we face this morning, for Oaks, is not the facts. We have more info than we could possibly imagine. Biblical faith this morning comes with an empty hand. It says, God, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. 
You have to know you need Jesus before you can find him. Let's pray.